Greetings to all of you this morning in Jesus' name. It's been a good morning to be together again, and uh, hope we can continue in the Word of God. Thankful for the presence of the Holy Spirit and the power of Jesus Christ, who is the head of the church. I want you to turn again to the book of Colossians. I will be reading um, verses 1 through 18. I'm sorry, not verses 1 through 18. I think I'll start in verse um, 11 and read through 19. Colossians chapter 1, verse 11. Strengthen with all might according to his glorious power unto all patience and longsuffering with joyfulness, giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and has translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. Now, I've, I've been preaching through the book of Colossians for those of you who haven't been here. And um, I've been spending a lot of time in these few verses here uh, particularly verses 13 through um, 18. I think I've read this text at least three or four times now. But I guess the reason that I'm spending a lot of time in these verses is I believe right here in these verses is the core of the message that Paul is bringing to the Colossians. It's kind of the crux of this letter. And... Um, What he is doing here is establishing the position that Jesus Christ holds, who he is, the preeminence that belongs to him. And it's, it's just, it's just kind of the key to this book, I believe. So hopefully, uh, I won't be spending quite as much time in all of the verses, but I do believe that what he says here is important enough to preach these sermons on. In the last sermon that I preached, I preached about the preeminence of Christ in his creation and thinking especially of verse 15 and 16. Today I would like to shift from thinking about the preeminence of Christ in his creation to thinking of the preeminence of Christ in the church. It says here, and primarily I want to look at verse 18. He is the head of the body, the church who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead that in all things he might have the preeminence. Now, in verse um, 
15, we have in verse 18, we have the phrase that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. In verse 15, it says that he is the firstborn of every creature. And in my last sermon, I expounded on uh, what I believe that that means um, somewhat. Um, Jesus being the firstborn of every creature, I believe is different than him being the firstborn from the dead. Jesus is set apart, if you remember, I'm kind of reviewing my last sermon now. Jesus is set apart from creation and from all other created beings because he was not created by God, but he was begotten of God. The Bible calls Adam the son of God. And Adam was, in a sense, the son of God, but he was not begotten of God. He was created by God. Jesus, the scriptures tell us, is the only begotten son of God. And David prophesied of the Messiah being the son of God in Psalm 2, verse 7. He said, I will declare the decree the Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son. This day have I begotten thee. And if you remember, I quoted from the Nicene Creed in the last sermon where it says, We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of all things, visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten of the Father, the only begotten, that is, of the essence of the Father, God of light, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father, by whom all things were made both in heaven and on earth. So this concept that Jesus was not made or created by God, but begotten of God is an important concept. He is the firstborn of every creature. And the scriptures tell us that we as the church of Jesus Christ are the general assembly and church of the firstborn, it says in Hebrews chapter 12. So that's, I believe, uh, just in a little nutshell, what, what it means that Jesus is the firstborn of every creature. He is the only begotten Son of God. Now, let's think about this phrase here in verse 18 where it says that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. And, and of course, this is speaking of Jesus' resurrection Jesus was raised from the dead. He is alive today. And here in verse 18, it's, it's noteworthy also that Paul is speaking of Christ being the head of the church in the same context as he is speaking of Christ's resurrection from the dead. I think this is very important. Paul is clearly and deliberately connecting the preeminence of Christ the authority of Christ over the church with his resurrection from the dead. Now, Jesus is without question the supreme authority of the church. Why? Because he is alive today. Because he is living. If there would be no living head of the church, there would be no living church. We could turn, and we're going to turn to a few other of Paul's writings where he connects the resurrection of Jesus Christ to his power over the church. The first one that I'd like to look at is Ephesians chapter 1. In Ephesians chapter 1, I'd like to read from verses 18 to 23. And while we are reading this passage, you can notice how similar 
this passage is to the one we just read in Colossians chapter 1. Very, very similar wording. Paul speaks of Christ's resurrection. He speaks of Christ being over principalities and powers like he does in Colossians. He speaks of Christ being over all things. He uses that phrase, all things, again. And he speaks of Christ being the head of the church. He also speaks of Christ, of the fullness of Christ. So let's read this. Verse 18, Ephesians chapter 1. The eyes of your understanding being in being enlightened that ye may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us word who believe according to the working of his mighty power which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. And he hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, and Paul makes this clear again in this passage, is the basis for his power and authority over the church and his power and authority over all things. In verses 19 and 20, Paul says that the mighty power of God was wrought in Jesus when he raised him from the dead. Because Jesus destroyed the power of death, God has put all things under his feet and made him, given him to be the head over all things to the church, like he says in verse 22. He hath put all things under his feet and given him to be the head over all things to the church. Jesus is the head of the church because he is alive, because he is the firstborn from the dead. Now in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we have another scripture by Paul where he doesn't use the phrase firstborn from the dead, but he uses this, the phrase firstfruits from the dead or firstfruits of them that slept. So turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and I'd like to read a few verses there. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 14. We're kind of breaking in here in the middle of Paul's... Um, making a case for the resurrection of man. And he's using the resurrection of Christ to say that, look, if Jesus is risen from the dead, or he's saying, if you are saying that man cannot rise from the dead, then Jesus has not risen from the dead because Jesus is the first fruits of them that slept. So let's read verses 14 through 27 in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And if Christ be not risen then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, ye are yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished, 
If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the firstfruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ at his coming. Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom of God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. For he hath put all things under his feet. But when he saith all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is accepted which did put all things under him. So again, Paul is speaking of the fact that Jesus was the first person to conquer the power of death by rising again and living forever. Jesus is never going to die again. We know in the scriptures that Jesus, that there was, was people who were resurrected by Jesus miraculously from the dead, but those people went on and died again. Jesus is never going to die again. He rose again. He's alive. He has destroyed death forever for himself and for everyone that believes on his name and follows him. He is the first fruits of the resurrection to eternal life. But there are many who are coming after him who are also going to rise to life eternal at that day when he returns to receive his kingdom and to receive his children. He is the first fruits. We are those who are coming after. His followers are those who are coming after. They will be the second and the third and the fourth fruits of the resurrection of the dead. Now again, in this scripture, there is a connection, especially in verses 25 through 27, I'd like you to notice it, between the resurrection of Jesus and the authority that has been given to him. It tells us here that he hath put all things under his feet. Jesus is the head of the church because he has triumphed over death. He has defeated the devil and he's alive. He's alive forevermore. That's why he can be the head of the church. That's It's by connecting Christ's resurrection to his position as head over the church that helps us hopefully to understand why he has the right to hold that position, why he is worthy to be in that place. So I'm attempting to help us to understand why Jesus can be and must be preeminent in the church. And now I'd like to move on to maybe a more practical level and think about how he is preeminent in the church. We have talked about why he has the right to be in that position as the head of the church. And again, because of the power of the resurrection, because he is alive today. But now, what does it look like for a church? What does a church look like where Christ has the preeminent place, where Christ is held as the head of the body? Is it possible for a Christian church to come to a place where Christ is no longer preeminent? Can Christ be replaced from his position by something or someone else? Now I realize 
You know, this, this whole discussion of Christ being the head of the church and having the preeminent place of the church, the church and Christ having that position are inseparable. If, if Christ doesn't, there is one sense that if Christ does not hold that position, then, then the body no longer is a church. It, it's then becomes an institution or a, a social gathering. It is no longer the church. So Christ of the true church, Christ must be the head of that or it's not the true, true church. But, but we need to think about practically how this works out for us as a body, as a church. What does it look like for Christ to be the head of the body? The scriptures give us different pictures, different analogies to help us understand the relationship that Christ has with his church. We have the picture of the bride and the bridegroom. Uh, we have that picture in, in uh, Ephesians 5, where it says that the husband is to love the wife as Christ loved the church, and the wife submits herself to her husband as the church submits herself to her groom, to Christ. And so we have that picture of the bride and the bridegroom. There are other scriptures that give us that picture. We also have Christ as uh, a picture of Christ's relationship with his church as the church as a building that is built upon the foundation of Jesus Christ, who is the chief cornerstone. And all the different members are framed up together on him, on Jesus Christ. So we have that picture given to us in the scriptures. Then we also have this picture of the church as a body and of Christ as its head. And that's the picture that we're thinking about this morning. In verse 18 of our text in Colossians, again, it says, He is the head of the body, the church. And there are other passages like Ephesians chapter 1 and 5 and 1 Corinthians 12, where it speaks of all the different members functioning together, where we have this, this picture of the human body, um, the, the, the analogy, the, the human body as an analogy or a picture of Christ and the church. The human body is a marvelous creation. Um, it has millions, billions of parts probably functioning together in one perfect unit in perfect harmony and order. And Brother Jeremy was talking to us this morning a little bit about the brain and how it works. And I am not by any stretch any kind of a neuroscientist or anything like that, but um, I did a little bit of research on the brain. So the reason that all of these different parts of the body can function together in an orderly, cohesive manner is because every member is controlled by one head, by one brain. All of us have one brain, one mind, um, one master control center of the body. And every time you move your fingers or your hands or your feet or whatever you decide to move, it's, it's because your brain tells you to do it. You know, we do these things subconsciously. I'm up here talking, moving my mouth and using my eyes to look at you and using my hands. And I'm not even thinking about what I'm doing because my brain is just telling me it's, it's functioning. It's, it's amazing the way that it can work. 
And I saw a fascinating diagram in the World Book Encyclopedia of um, a part of the brain that's called the cerebral cortex. And this part of the brain is kind of in the upper middle interior of your brain. It has two sides. The one side is called the motor, and the other side is called the uh, somesthetic area if I can say that right. The motor on one side, the somesthetic area on the other. So the motor side of your brain controls the different body parts. Um, it's what tells your arm to move. It's what tells your finger to point. It's what tells your lips to speak and so on. And the, the somesthetic area receives impulses from your body parts. So the one side gives commands and the other side receives impulses. And the fascinating thing about this diagram is that it showed every piece of the brain is linked to a certain member of your body. So there's a tiny section of the motor part that's linked to your fingers. And there's a tiny section of the motor part that's linked to your toes. And there's a tiny section that's linked to every part of your body that you can, so that that part tells you when to move. And then, then there's a, a side also on the other side that receives impulses from those parts so it knows what's going on in your body. And just, um, just amazing the way that every piece, every part of your body is linked individually to its own section of, the, of this cerebral cortex of the human brain. And um, another thing that amazes that is amazing about it is that the most sensitive parts of your body, like your fingers and your lips and some of those most sensitive parts of your body, have a bigger, a little bigger section of the brain than the rest of the parts. Fascinating, just just a little bit. But I was just I was thinking about this analogy of Christ being the head of the church. Christ being the head of the church means that he is the leader. He is the director of the church. He holds the position of central authority and rule. After all, it is his church. Jesus has purchased the church with his own blood. It belongs to him. And just as the brain of the human body is the master control center so Christ is the master control center of his church. We look to him for our marching orders. We take our impulses from him. We receive our signals from him. We make our moves by his direction and his command from the principles he has established in the new covenant. This we do as a collective body, but we also do it there's a there's a very personal and individual responsibility in all of this. And just as every part of the human body is individually linked to its own section, its own respective part of the brain, so also each one of us as individual members of the body must be individually connected to our head, to Christ. If the church is going to be a body, if the church is going to be a collective body where Christ is the head, then the church must be made up of members who are individually connected to that head. That is important. That is so important. We are collectively connected to our head 
and to each other through the communion and the fellowship of Jesus Christ. He is our fellowship and our communion. But we must also be individually connected to that life-giving vine as Jesus taught us in John chapter 15. He said in John 15 verses 4 and 5, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it abide in the vine, no more can ye except ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me ye can do nothing. Each of us as individual members of the body of Christ are personally responsible to remain connected to the living vine, to make Jesus the control, the master control center of our bodies, of our lives, of everything that we are. I'd like to jump over to uh, Colossians chapter 2. The few verses here I'd like to look at. Um, verses 18 and 19 of Colossians chapter 2. We have another reference here to Christ being the head of the church. Paul says in verse 18 of Colossians 2, Let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels, intruding into those things which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding the head from which all the body by joints and bands have nourishment ministered, and knit together increaseth with the increase of God. I'm not going to expound um, in depth on verse 18 uh, on the voluntary humility and worshiping of angels and those things, but, but Paul is speaking here of someone who is no longer holding Christ as the head of the church, but rather replacing him with things that he has set up out of his own fleshly mind. Verse 19, the Holman translation says, he doesn't hold on to the head. He's speaking of this person who has set up his own things that have preeminence to replace Christ. He says, he doesn't hold on to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and held together by its ligaments and tendons, develops with growth from God. So again, Paul uses the human body as an analogy of the church and her head. And he gives us three things here that are marks of a healthy human body. He says, first of all, that the uh, the body not holding the head from which all the body by joints and bands having nourishment. So nourishment, that of being sustained by food, the ability to digest food and put it to use in the body is what gives it sustenance and life. Humanly speaking, we must be able to nourish our bodies with food or we're going to die. And then he says, um, he uses... He moves on and says, not holding the head from which all the body by joints and bands having nourishment. Um, he uses the, the Holman Bible use, says, doesn't hold on to the head from whom the whole body nourished and held together by its ligaments and tendons develops with growth from God. Paul uses the word increaseth 
with the increase of God in the King James Version. So the the development and growth is is another thing that we see. You know, one of the best indications of health and vitality in the body of a child is when that child is growing and developing and making progress in the normal expected way that that child should. When you see it, it, it growing in height and and filling out and growing muscles and becoming stronger and um, maturing, that's that's a mark of progress. That's a that's what we want to see in our children. And then also we have the aspect of cohesion. He says the body is held together by muscles, tendons, and ligaments. He says. It's knit together is the words that he uses here in the King James. It's knit together um, by joints and bands being knit together. So there is a cohesion in the body that our bodies, our physical bodies are held together by muscles, by tendons, by ligaments and bones and all of this structure. It's an amazing structure, but it's all held together so that we're able to move and function in our bodies as one cohesive unit. And uh, a healthy body is not disjointed and uncoordinated, but it works together and it's all tied together and knit together the way that it should be. Now, each of these is also a characteristic of a healthy, vibrant church that is connected to her head. The church that is holding Jesus preeminent and making him the leader and the director of the body. The church where Jesus is the head, receives her nourishment and her sustenance from her head, from the one who is preeminent, who holds that preeminent preeminent place, position. And again, this speaks of being connected to that living vine. When the branch is cut off from the vine, there is death because that sap cannot flow through there anymore. It must be connected to the vine. Jesus speaks of himself being the bread of life, spiritual nourishment to the soul in John chapter 6, um, verses 51 and 58. I should just read some of those verses quickly so that I get it right. John chapter 6, verse 51, Jesus said, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. The Jews therefore strove among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me, and I in him. As the living Father hath sent me, and I live by the Father, so he that eateth me, even he shall live by me. This is that bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers did eat manna and are dead, He that eateth of this bread shall live forever. So this isn't talking about some kind of mystical transubstantiation or something like that. It's simply talking about being one with the living vine, partaking of that living bread. Jesus is the living bread 
that must be ingested into the individual and into the church for nourishment and for growth. You know, in a very real sense, the food, the the physical food that you eat becomes you. It becomes who you are. It It's digested into your body and it turns into, it, it becomes um, ingested into your blood and into your tissue and it really becomes who you are. And so Jesus must be integrated into the blood and the tissue of the church to the point that we become one with him. That he is in us and we are in him. That's what Jesus is talking about when he says that we need to eat this living bread and we need to eat his flesh and drink his blood. He's speaking spiritually. We are to become a part of who he is. He in us and we in him. He we in him. He defines who we are. We are his. He is our sustenance and life. So that's the nourishment part of what Paul is speaking of here. And then we'll think of the cohesion part, just as the body is held together by its tendons and its joints and its bones and muscle structure and all of those things. So also the head Jesus is what holds the church together. Jesus brings cohesion and togetherness to the body. He is our fellowship. He is our communion, our koinonia. The Greek word for that is koinonia. The church that looks to anything other than Jesus for unity and togetherness is going to lose its way. That's just the way that it is. In John chapter 17 Verses 21 and 23, in his prayer for his disciples, Jesus said that they all may be one as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me, I in them and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one and that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them and thou hast loved me that they also may be one in us, he says. So he has that we are not just one among ourselves, but we are one in him. And then he also says, I in them and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one. It is as Jesus is one with us as a body that we can have unity and have togetherness and have peace. Our unity is based on Jesus being among us and being in us and being through us. The church is only unified and made perfect in one as he is in us and as he is the preeminent one in the body. And then we have the aspect of development and growth And he uses the phrase here in Colossians 2, increaseth with the increase of God. That is powerful. That is real growth. That's unstoppable increase. Increaseth with the increase of God. So when Jesus is the head of the church, there will be development and there will be growth. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15, but speaking the truth in love, 
may grow up into him in all things which is the head, even Christ. Speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things. And again, there is why, how can we grow up into him? Because he is the head. He is our, the master control center of the body. So as members of the body, we are to grow up into our head, which is Jesus Christ. Our head, Jesus Christ, even though he has that preeminent position, he is the preeminent one under which God placed all of creation, all things, the scriptures tell us. He is the head of the church, even though he holds all of that authority and power. Yet he is not so far above us that we cannot relate to him or that we cannot learn to be like him. We can be one with him. We are to grow up into him. That means we are to aspire to be like him. He is our head, is our example. He is our pattern. He's our model. He has shown us how to live. He has demonstrated the walk that he wants us to walk. And he has given us the power to grow and to develop into his likeness and in, into his image. Philippians says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Put on the mind of Christ, the scriptures tell us. So we are to be like him. So a church that has Christ as her head will be a church whose members strive to grow and mature into his image. Men and women who aspire to be like him in all areas of life, in all of life. A church where Jesus is the central collective focus and vision. Our eyes are on him. We are focused on him and all other things are peripheral. The church where, where Christ is head will follow and obey Jesus' teaching. Jesus said, if ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. And we have these verses all over the scriptures, this, this concept that those who follow Jesus, those who claim Jesus as their head, as their Lord and master, will obey Jesus in all of their lives. First um, John, hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. And when a church begins to drop and discontinue the things that Jesus taught, we can be bold enough to say that Jesus is no longer the head of that church. And when we look back at the 2,000 year history of the church, we can see that it has been a struggle for the church to keep Christ as her head and to remain faithful to him. The devil wants nothing more than to render the church powerless by getting her to focus off of her head and onto something else, something to replace him. He doesn't care what it is as long as the focus is not on Jesus, as long as we're not holding Jesus as the head of the church, the devil doesn't care what we are holding preeminent. And this was a battle from the beginning. In Acts chapter 2, after that the Holy Ghost had come to that little group at Pentecost, Peter got up and he preached that powerful sermon. 5,000 people were added to the church. 
Do you know what the crux of Peter's message was to those people? The crux of the message was that Jesus Christ, whom you have slain and crucified, is alive today. He is living and he has ascended to the Father. And it is His in his name that you can have salvation and repent. And people heard that message and they repented. And so right from the start, he, Peter said, what, Whom God hath raised up, having loosed the bonds I'm sorry, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. So right from the start, the church was built on the resurrection of Jesus Christ and his authority as head over all. But it didn't take long for the devil to start bringing in alternatives and distractions to the true head of Jesus Christ. And he tried to get the Jewish Christians to go back to making the law as the preeminent focus of the church. The whole book of Galatians is, is Paul bringing the church back, trying to bring the church back to, to Jesus Christ as her head rather than focusing on the law. He, he's trying to get them to see that Jesus Christ is the head of the church and to get them back to that. Oh, foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you? He asks in that, in that uh, book. And in chapters 5, verses 3 and 4, he says, For I testify again to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to do the whole law. Christ is become of no effect unto you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law, ye are fallen from grace. Now that is strong language that Paul was using to those Judaizers. But he is right. Paul is right, and we need to be careful today that we do not let anything distract us from our head, from Jesus Christ, to holding the preeminent position in the church. The devil wants to use anything. There are ditches on both sides of the road. He wants to use, he wants to get us to turn to legalism and the traditions of men and the preservation of culture. He wants us to make those things the center of our focus and put that in the preeminent place so that we get our eyes off of Jesus Christ. If he can use those things, he will use them. The, on the other side of the ditch, and this is the side that we see a lot of today, we see churches, so-called Christian churches all around us who are using tolerance and peace and inclusiveness. Those are the things that they're setting on the pedestal of preeminence and they're doing it at the expense of Jesus Christ and what he taught. Many churches are giving peace and tolerance the preeminent place in the church. Inclusiveness and love is replacing the person of Jesus Christ. It's not right. The church cannot stand without anything other than Jesus as her head. It's going to lose its way with Jesus Without Jesus as the head of the church, the church is going to lose its way. The Catholic Church, they tried to replace Jesus with the sword of the government and with man's power. It was a colossal failure. They made a mess out of the Christian church and the church, the true church, suffered greatly because of it. The church will always lose its way when it turns away from her head. Jesus only has the right and power to the preeminent place of head over the church. And I'm thankful to be part of a congregation 
where I believe every one of us is committed to following Jesus Christ as the head of the church. I value that. I value that. And I don't want to give that up. May we collectively keep our focus and our eyes on Him. May we always give Him that place that He belongs, that place of position as the head of the church, as the one who has complete preeminence and first place in the church. And may we love and obey Him fully. Let's kneel for prayer.